Well, I have really enjoyed uh, this um, race through the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through in the, the past number of weeks. And um, the passage that uh, I've been given to share this morning takes place uh, in the ancient city of Jericho, the famous one from the Old Testament. And it was about 14 miles to Jerusalem, Jericho was, about from here up to Bothel. And this was the final stop of Jesus and his disciples before they actually entered Jerusalem for the last time. Read with me these uh, words from Mark, in, uh, starting in verse 32. He writes, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. This was one of those moments towards the end of Jesus' uh, life here on earth where his disciples were just kind of emotionally twisted inside. They didn't know what to say or what to do in, in the face of these predictions on Jesus' part about his death. Put yourself in their place, if you can, for a moment this morning. Think about a time when you felt overwhelmed by a mix of emotions inside of you in regards to something that was going on in your life. I grew up in a small housing uh, track in rural New Jersey in the 1950s, in, the, in my young childhood anyway. And it was a, a neighborhood that was full of really interesting characters. And one of those interesting characters lived right across the street from me. His name was Tommy Hackett. And Tommy had been dubbed the neighborhood troublemaker. Every neighborhood's got one of those, right? And I liked Tommy a lot because Tommy would do anything. And I was afraid of Tommy because Tommy would do anything. And I remember the night my mom came into the dining room at our home and told us that Tommy's mom had died. Death was kind of like an unexplored country at that point in my life. I'd never been exposed to death before. So the next morning, I sat in our living room windows looking, staring across the street at a stream of people that were coming in and out of Tommy's house. And pretty soon I noticed Tommy dressed in a black suit with a black tie walk across the street into our carport and he just stood there staring back at his house. My dad had built this gigantic doghouse. We had a German shepherd growing up, and whenever the dog wasn't in there, we kids would commandeer his house, and we would make it our fort. It was kind of the place that we felt safe from the world outside. And my older brother and I walked out into the carport where Tommy was, and we spun that doghouse around about 180 degrees so that its, its opening faced Tommy's house, and we all climbed inside no one saying a word. There we were, three pairs of eyes in the dark, watching the people come and go out of Tommy's house. And then all of a sudden, this big black limousine pulled up. 
and four men got out of there and out of the rear of that limousine, they took this enormous black casket and carried it inside. None of us had ever seen a casket before. But somehow, some way, we all knew that Tommy's mom was in there. We felt dazed and amazed and afraid. Well, Jericho was like our doghouse for the disciples. It was facing Jerusalem. It was their last stop on a long journey where Jesus was prophesying now for the third time for his disciples that their whole world was about to be turned upside down. They'd seen amazing things in their walk with Jesus over these past three and a half years. He fed the 5,000 out of just a few loaves and fishes. He uh, 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 cast out demons out of the writhing body of a young boy. He, he was on the sea during a storm, and he told the wave just to peace out. And they did. He even raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And now... Out of that same kind of authority, he prophesied about his imminent arrest and humiliation, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Mark mentions that Jesus was saying all these things while they were on the road together going down or going up to Jerusalem. I think it's, it's kind of an easy thing for us who are very familiar with the Gospels to take for granted the extraordinary posture that God takes to be present with his people. But it's really one of the remarkable contrasts that the Scriptures make between the God of the Bible and the gods of the cultures that surrounded them. Everywhere in the scriptures, we see the evidences of the high value God places on being present with us. In Genesis, uh, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Exodus, it says, build me a tent so I can live right in the middle of this nation. In Leviticus, he gave them a sacrificial system so they, he could come into their presence without them being destroyed by his holiness. In John, God uh, says that he was tabernacling with us. He was camping out with us in the person of Jesus. In Matthew, he promised that I'll be with you to the end of the age. And then finally in Revelation, an angel shouts from God's throne and says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, it's only because of God's passion to be with us that we get to know him and to understand what God is like. And it's only because of God's provision for his people that we're not destroyed by his presence among us. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus gives us that last and final foretelling of his death and resurrection. He says again, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That 
title in this text that Jesus uses for himself is the same one he uses in all three of his predictions about his suffering, death, and resurrection. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's this designation that the scriptures often use to speak about who God is as God incarnate, God in the flesh, God in a body. Mark uses it 13 times in his gospel, and 11 of them are clustered around the time when Jesus' body is about to be offered on the cross. That title highlighted the truth that even before the foundation of the world, God's plan has always been to save people for himself from their sin by becoming like one of us, a man like one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember that song a number of years ago by Joan Osborne, What If God Were One of Us? Well, that's exactly what God has done in the person of Jesus. Men and women, the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ is more than a cute story about a Jewish baby being born in Bethlehem. The incarnation of God in the person of Jesus is actually the centerpiece of God's plan to condemn sin in his flesh so that he can rescue a people for himself. God gave us in the Old Testament a picture to help us understand that price that God's justice demanded for our sin. It was the sacrifice of the life of an animal that they brought to the temple. God said that the sacrifice of an animal would symbolically substitute for the life that we owed to God because of our sin. But those sacrifices, we know, as you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, they had weaknesses. First, no animal's life could actually substitute for a human being's life because human beings were made in the image of God and no animal is made in the image of God. And secondly, no animal sacrifice actually had the power to change our life. Without a new life, we'd all be living in a kind of a Groundhog's Day scenario where we're continually repeating the same sin and in the same scene over and over and over again. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the sacrifices that the people of God offered for sin, they did year after year after year with no end in sight. Men and women, we don't need a second chance from God. We need to be connected to a new life. In the person of Jesus, God resolved both of those weaknesses. We needed an actual substitute in our place to die for our sin. We needed to be connected to a new life that really had the power to change our lives. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I live and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In his death I died, in his life I live. Mark presents Jesus, the Son of Man, 
as the one who is on his way now to the altar of the cross to offer his body once for all for our sin and then this is the complete gospel and then he rises from the dead to give us new life that has a new power that can change our lives this is the final announcement that Jesus makes of the person and work of God's unexpected Messiah as he leaves Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. It's this proclamation of the gospel, his final announcement here of who Jesus is and what he's come to do that sets the stage for the rest of the passage that we'll look at this morning. There are two stories that Mark presents for us Uh, He uses them as kind of like case studies to help us to understand that whoever you believe Jesus to be will determine how you come to understand who you are and how you live your life as his disciple. So let's let Mark show us how this works. In verse 35, he says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, and this is a really important question, we're gonna ask it again and again and again this morning. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Way back in the beginning of the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, God tells us two very important things about who we are and how we're designed to live. The first thing he tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we were created in the image of God. He's the creator, and we're created to be like him. This means that if we're ever going to have a true understanding of who we really are, first we have to understand who he is. The second thing that Genesis 1 and 2 tells us is that God created us to live in ways that reflect that identity. There's movement here from identity to how I live my life. This means that we learn how to live our lives by understanding how does God live his life. Think about it. The first thing that that God told Adam and Eve in the garden was not who they were. God told them who he was. He's the creator. He created the universe and everything in it. He created them. And it's from that picture that he gives us of himself that they began to understand who they were and how to live their lives as men and women created in the image of God. How they handled relationship with God and with each other and how they exercised their stewardship over creation was the canvas that God gave them to express their identity by doing what was good and avoiding what was evil. God was the great somebody who served these nobodies. Remember, Adam was just a pile of dirt and and Eve a sack of ribs. God is the great somebody who served these nobodies, making them into somebodies who could serve the glory of God. But as you all know, if you've read past Genesis 2, that God's story gets interrupted. Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and 
he offers them an alternative, an alternate identity for them to live in. He said simply living for the glory of God isn't enough for your life. Existing as a road sign that just points back to the glory of God, it diminishes you. You're more than that. So he suggested this is your real opportunity. Possess your own glory. Create your own glory. And Genesis 3 tells us the tragic story about how Adam and Eve rejected the identity that God created for them as his image bearers and exchanged it for identities that were independent of God, identities that promoted their own glory. And now, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are born committing the same sin, and this is what it looks like. We listen to the other voices that surround our life instead of God's voice, whether it's the voice of relationships that are closest to us or the voice of culture and what it says about what's valuable and attractive and worthwhile or the voices of the circumstances of our life that have unfolded. We listen to those voices instead of God's voice telling us who he is and what he's done and Therefore, who we are and how we're designed to live to serve his glory. For some of us, those messages about our identity have been clearly articulated by the voices we've been listening to. Voices of people who have said things to you that have literally changed the course of your life. Others of us are, are putting this together like pieces to a puzzle, and if you work at it long enough, eventually you're presented with a picture that suggests who you really are. I worked with a, a couple that came in for marriage counseling a number of years when I was in my private practice and for some marriage counseling, and, and uh, their marriage was a wreck, and her main complaint was this, and some of you women will be able to fill in the last phrase here. He's never at home, and even when he is at home, he's not at home. Mike, and that's not his name, but it's a name that I'll use, Mike grew up in the home of a hard-working, blue-collar dad. His older brother was a person he describes as just kind of the artistic type in life. He took time to smell the roses. He was a little bit poetic. He enjoyed life. And what happened was those values of his older brother and the values of his hardworking, blue-collar dad clashed constantly. And as Mike watched this unfold between his brother and his dad, he came to this conclusion. I am only as much as I can do. I am only as much as I can do. In other words, if I work hard to accomplish something, then my life will have real value and real meaning. So he wasn't handy like his dad was, but he was smart. He studied really hard in school. He got a scholarship to a, a great law school, and he was hired by a prestigious law firm right out of college. What happened as he went back home and had a celebration with 
friends of his back in his hometown in the state of Washington, he drank too much. And on the way home, he was pulled over by a police officer. Now, this is back in the 1950s, and this is the way they handled it back then. He got pulled over. Sheriff took him to the, 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 the jail, called his dad on the phone to come pick him up. And uh, as they walked out of the jail, got into the car, his dad leaned over and started to do what dads do, started the lecture. And Mike told me he pointed his finger in his dad's face and he warned him, don't you dare say a word to me. You see, for Mike, his whole identity had become wrapped up in achieving something. And achievement led him to a growing sense of entitlement in his life. And his sense of entitlement began to ruin and color every one of his relationships. Mike's sense of identity was doomed to chasing achievement instead of Jesus and love in relationship. And now I saw him some 30 years later, and Mike was still resolved to do something in order to become someone. And the incredible price that Mike paid was the loss of his marriage and his family. Now, I tell you that story to help you understand what's going on in the text that we're going to be reading this morning. Um, your understanding of who I am that leads to what I end up doing with my life is what these stories are all about. So what I want to do is take a look to understand what the disciples have learned about themselves and the direction that they're going with their life. They are members of, of course, the nation of Israel, right? They're Jews. Let's think about the nation of Israel and history and what's happened to them and what are the voices that are out there. The glory days of Israel are long gone. Solomon's temple has been uh, sacked and left in ruins. Assyria came down and swallowed up the northern ten tribes of Israel. Uh, Babylon came then and captured Babylon or uh, Assyria, and they took them away. Then Persia came and devoured uh, uh, Babylon, and Greece consumed Persia. And now Rome was the one who held the scepter of power in the ancient world, and they were the ones that stood with their boot on Israel's neck. The voice of culture told them, you're getting the shaft. What you need to do is to turn this equation around and then you'll be okay. With that in mind, understanding some of that history, some of the voice that's speaking to them out of their history, let's listen again to how the disciples answer Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, he says, the disciples, James and John, say, grant us one to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus was living his life out of his understanding of his identity that was created for him from his father. The cup that Jesus would drink and the baptism that he would endure represented his life in the identity that the Father had prepared for him. Jesus would drink the foaming cup of God's wrath for our sin down to the dregs. Jesus would submit to a baptism of whatever suffering his Father required so that we could be saved. As God's servant, that's his identity, Jesus lived his life in a way that brought glory to his Father. And because you and I are created in his image, this reflects our identity and the path that he has created for our lives as his disciples. Let me read on here, verse 39. They said to him... (laughs) We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him. Huddle up, you guys. I've got something to say. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. See, Jesus is helping them to see here how they have allowed the voices of culture to shape their identity. That's why they answer Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? They say, basically, we want power and position. That's what we need. That's what we're lacking. That's what will make our life full and meaningful. They aren't listening to who Jesus claims to be or what Jesus is about to do for them. They have allowed the other voices that they're listening to to tell them who they are and how they were created to live. And now, going all the way back to Genesis, now they are remaking God in their image instead of reflecting his. That's why the disciples are just annoyed with Jesus' answer, and they're indignant with James and John, because they beat them to the punch. Jesus goes on, verse 43. He says, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus turns their whole worldview and their sense of identity upside down here. It's it's very unexpected what he has to say. Instead of power and position of these rulers and kings, Jesus says life in God's kingdom, under God's rule. He recognizes and rewards the sacrifices of servants and slaves. Now I have to stop here and warn you. 
of a terrible mistake that we're all prone to make here in one way or another. If we stop here at this verse, and just to be clear, Jesus doesn't, so we'll go on and read what he has to say. If we stop here, we're likely to misunderstand the even more radical nature of the gospel that he's presenting here for us. If you stop here, you may conclude that Jesus is saying, well, if you live radically different lives from how the Gentile rulers live, then you'll become the people that I love and value. If you stop here, you may conclude that Jesus is giving them an alternate path. If you become servants and slaves to other people, then you'll be a part of my tribe. You'll belong to my club. If you stop here, you may conclude that doing something establishes your identity. That serving someone becomes the path to being. But you would be wrong. It's backwards. It's not what Jesus is saying here. The gospel says that reorganizing your life around some new principles won't help. He says that turning over a new leaf in your life won't change what has to be changed in us. The real, radical, and scandalous message of the gospel is in verse 45, when Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men and women, this is so important for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not presenting himself as a good moral example to follow. All of us have already failed at that. He's not asking them, work hard to find a way to repay me for what I'm about to do for you. We have nothing to offer in exchange for our lives. That was the whole problem. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ has come to serve us. The good news of the gospel is not start doing this stuff so that you can become someone. The radical good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to serve us. How radical is that? And yet, tragically, we all prefer to do something so we can become someone. But men and women, that's a demonic way of understanding your identity. Without Jesus serving us, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Without Jesus serving us, we're not born again. Without Jesus serving us, we're not baptized into the family of God. Without Jesus serving us, we have no power to serve the glory of God. It's interesting that in just a few days from this scene in Jericho, Jesus brings up the same issue with his disciples, only this time it's in the upper room and they're eating the Last Supper with Jesus. In John 13, it tells us that before the meal, Jesus girded his clothing. He bent down and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And you remember the scene. Peter stands up and says, you shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus looks up at him and says to him, Peter, if I do not wash you, if I do not serve you, you have no share with me. Men and women, our identity as members of God's family is not that we're good and faithful servants of Jesus. Our identity in God's family is not that we've finally succeeded in doing something significant enough that it ransoms our life. We are the children of God only because Jesus came to serve us. God is our Father because Jesus paid the ransom price for our sin. Jesus is our brother because he drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin. We are the temple of God, the house of God, the tabernacle of God because Jesus has cleansed us and given us new life. I love that song that Donald sings. He's going to lead, lead us in it uh, later after the message this morning, you'll recognize it. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. There's identity. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. That's our identity. We are ones that are loved by Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. If that's who you are, if you're one loved by God, if you're one served by Jesus' death and resurrection, then everything begins to change in our lives. He changes our hearts, so we're compelled to serve God's glory just like Jesus did. He gives us power through our lives, uh, to do through our lives what he's already done in our lives. And he gives us grace. So our lives progressively become more like Jesus, reflecting his character in ever-increasing ways in the everyday stuff of our life. Now the only thing I can figure out, because there's a second story here, the only thing I can figure out, why, does, why is there a second story about the same issue with a different character where Jesus asked the same exact question. I think you'll find out in a minute. Verse 46. They came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and telling him to be silent, shut up. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's like this one of those hecklers at a political rally. He just won't shut up. Verse 49, Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. And they, they knew what was going to happen. Call him. They called the blind man saying to him, get up, 
or take heart, get up, he's calling you. They know, they've seen this scenario again and again and again. They're saying to Bartimaeus, you won the lotto, man. You won the lotto, get up. Bartimaeus doesn't escape him. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Remember the question that Jesus asked his disciples about the cup and the baptism? Well, here's Bartimaeus. His life is radically different than the life of the disciples. A lot of them were kind of businessmen, tax gatherers. Uh, They had a very different kind of life than Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, as a blind man, has already been drinking the bitter cup of suffering in his life. Bartimaeus is a blind man that's already been baptized into a life of begging on the fringes of society. But what Jesus shows us here is that it's not Bartimaeus' suffering or his sacrifice or power and position that the disciples wanted that brings us into God's kingdom. Like us, Bartimaeus was born as a member of the enemy's kingdom, a dark and doomed kingdom that stands opposed to God's kingdom. The only thing that separated Bartimaeus in these two stories from the disciples of Jesus was his answer to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus had opened the eyes of Bartimaeus' heart to see that his deepest need was for mercy from God. Jesus then offered this helpless, hopeless enemy of God a new identity and a new life so he could serve a new king in a new and glorious kingdom. Mark's gospel, you see, begs the question, who are the true disciples of Jesus? And the answer that the gospel gives us, it's all of those who recognize their hopelessness and helplessness apart from him, and all those who cry out for mercy from Jesus. Now listen carefully to what happens. Two miracles. And Jesus, verse 52, said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight. That was the first miracle, but the second one is far more profound. It says, he, Bartimaeus, followed Jesus on the way. Do you see the turn? Do you see the change? Jesus served Bartimaeus in a way that fundamentally changed his identity, who he was. And the outworking of that identity immediately was that Bartimaeus, what Bartimaeus did with his life. Now Jesus' way was Bartimaeus' way. Jesus is the great somebody who served Bartimaeus a nobody and made him somebody who could serve the glory of God. 
Bartimaeus is a new somebody that day because Jesus served him. Now let me land the plane. Jesus is asking all of us here this morning, do you hear him? This same question. What do you want me to do for you? If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in what Jesus has done for you, maybe you've tried and failed to live the religious life. Well, I say congratulations, that's a good thing. Maybe you're honest enough to admit to yourself that your efforts aren't enough, your sacrifices aren't sufficient, your strategies aren't working. Maybe like Bartimaeus, you feel hopeless and helpless this morning. And if that's the case, then the gospel has really good news for your life. Jesus is asking you his question. What do you want me to do for you? And I would say to you, if you hear his voice this morning speaking out of the gospels, then answer him. Let your heart cry out for mercy from him, for the forgiveness of sins. Let him connect your life to his powerful resurrection life. Let Jesus' life serve your life so that it can begin to serve the glory of God. Some of you are here this morning, you realize that the identity you've been living from is anchored in the myriad of voices that shout out to you that, you know what, you're a nobody because you have failed and you will continue to fail. If that's you this morning, then there's good news for the go- uh, in the gospel for you. If you're a nobody living under the condemnation of your life, sin and failures, the gospel says this. The father has already received the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Jesus has already paid the ransom price, the full price for all of your sin and failure in life. And God declares whatever your failure, it is no longer your identity. Paul says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Others of you are here this morning, and the identity you've been living out of is anchored in the voices that shout out to you that, you know what, you're somebody because you've accomplished something in your life. You've done something that matters, so now you're a person that matters. That's a trap. That's a trap. If that's the case, the good news of the gospel for your life is that the Father is calling you this morning to rest in what Jesus has done for you. It's only because Jesus has served you that you're somebody in God's kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says, whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works. Rest in the truth that because Jesus served you in his death and resurrection, that you're somebody in God's kingdom this morning. And finally, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and has connected you with a new life and new power to live that life, then Jesus is also calling you this morning through the gospel to give yourself to him, 
to serve his church on his mission, to give yourself not out of compulsion to serve or to earn anything, but give your lives, serve God's church as an act of celebration, the glory of the kingdom of God, because Jesus is the great somebody who has served all of us who are nobodies, making us into somebodies who can serve the glory of God. Pray with me. Father, I know that you gave me this message this morning because it's first of all for me. Thank you for your discipline. Thank you for your desire to be with us, your people, to love us and bless us. Thank you for architecting a salvation that declares you as the glorious one. Thank you for the opportunity to live as servants of your glory. Jesus, thank you for serving the Father's plan of our salvation. Thank you for serving us by offering your life in our place for our sin. Thank you for your resurrection that connects us with your righteous life. And great Holy Spirit, draw us to Jesus this morning that we might be served by him. Give us eyes to see Jesus, the ransom for our sins. Give us faith in Jesus so that we might live by his resurrection power and help us to live our lives celebrating and displaying God's glory through our lives. Thanks for joining us for the Unexpected Jesus series as we walk through the book of Mark at Doxa Church. Doxa Church exists to equip people to live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com.